0: So, in 36 years of life here, which has been my lifespan, there's been a lot that's gone on, but I don't know that there's ever been a more tense time in our country's history of my lifetime that I can remember. I don't think there's been another time in my lifetime where I've been more unsure of what the future is going to hold for the church, for us as an, a nation. I mean, just the events of this last week, going into this series, going into this year, I knew that I was going to focus on and study the book of Daniel. I knew that that was what we wanted to do, and I knew that it was going to be helpful. But of course, this was before all the election, and this was before the fallout from the election. This was before the chaos. This was before the Capitol building got stormed. This is before all of that stuff. And then you add to that what's going on with COVID and the fact that yesterday there was 43 deaths from COVID and today there were 50 deaths from COVID and the ICUs are overwhelmed and things just aren't getting better by and large. And when we push back from the table, we have to look at the reality and that is that our country is not in a good way right now. But what's great about that at the same time is I think that makes this book more appropriate than it ever has been before either. See, I've studied the book of Daniel. I've preached the book of Daniel multiple times over the course of my ministry career, but I don't think I've ever preached it during a time that is is more appropriate than the time that faces us as a church currently. A time that faces you as the next generation of the leaders of the church presently. As we think about what's in front of us, this book of Daniel, what it's gonna do for us is gonna hold up for us a God who is sovereign over everything. And you see, that's something that the church seems to be forgetting today. See, it's in our doctrinal statements and we're great with that, that the fact that God is sovereign, okay, I'm gonna affirm that in my doctrinal statement and I'm gonna to go to a church that believes that God is sovereign, but don't ask me to believe that God is sovereign when I make my Instagram post. Don't ask me to believe that God is sovereign when I rant about social media. Don't ask me to believe that God is sovereign when I talk to you about politics or about masks or about COVID. Then all bets are off. But what the book of Daniel shows us during a time that's unlike anything that we've ever experienced, because the reality is it's still pretty comfortable for us to be Christians in our country. But what the book of Daniel shows us and will show us is it shows us and even in these first seven verses that we're gonna look at tonight is that during a time where it seems like everything is out of control, God is fully in control. That God reigns and rules and is sovereign at all times and over everything. And in fact, not only is he there as it unfolds, but he is unfolding it. And that's what the book of Daniel does for us. It leads us into this unavoidable reality that we can't escape, that that God is sovereign and that he is orchestrating everything according to his will and for his glory. And our job is to simply trust him and follow him and obey him. Grab your Bibles. If you're not there already, open up to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter one, verses one through seven. But I want us to just start with verse one and stop there for a second. So in Daniel 1.1, we read this In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to the king of Babylon, rather, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, so stop right there. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So what we have going on here is taking place somewhere between the, the years of 606 and 605 BC. 606 and 605 BC, which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. So let me put that on a a timeline for you. If we go all the way back to the Exodus, so we've got Moses leading Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. We're dealing with 1446 BC, okay? So Daniel 605, we've got Moses in 1446 BC. After that, you think about, okay, you've got the time of the judges and then the last judge was this guy named what? Samuel, right? Well, Samuel came on the scene. Samuel was around from 1105 to 1013 BC. 1105 to 1013 BC. And then Samuel anointed two kings. The first king was who? Saul. And then the second king that came after him was King David. And David was from 1011 to 971. So now we're about 1000 BC in that range, that time frame, About 400 years before Daniel, King David reigned. Well, after David, you have King Solomon. And then after Solomon, what happens to the kingdom? It does what? It splits. And you've got the divided kingdom in Israel. And you've got the, the, the northern tribes, which are known as the, the nation of Israel. And then you've got the southern tribes, which are known as the, the nation of Judah or the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And that divided kingdom was from about 931-ish to about 715 BC. So almost 200 years there of the divided kingdom. During that time, you guys remember the name Elijah, the The prophet? Elijah the prophet was was serving during the the years of about 865 to 847. You guys are not going to be quizzed on this. We're not writing all these days down so you can be quizzed on it. I just want you to, to be able to place Daniel, all right? So we're about 200 years after David, and you've got Elijah on the scene. Then the prophet Isaiah from 736 to 697. 736 to 697 with Isaiah. Then you've got the fall of the northern kingdom, So you've got the fall of Israel, Assyria comes along and conquers Israel, again, part of God's sovereign plan, and that happens around 732 to 722 BC, 732 to 722, so we're getting closer to Daniel. Well, and then you've got this guy named Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim, who's the king that shows up in Daniel chapter one, he rules in Judah, the southern kingdom, and he rules from 609 to 598 BC. 609 to 598 BC. Well, in the middle of his reign, it says there in the third year of his reign, Daniel and his three friends end up being taken captive. 605 BC, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they're taken captive and they end up in Babylon. And then if we fast forward from where we're at right now in 586 BC, Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed. So that gives you a, a, a kind of an overarching timeline of where we've been from the Exodus all the way to where Daniel is. So the Exodus in 1446, Daniel in 605, you've got uh, around 800 years or so there and, and, and a lot takes place in that time frame. But hopefully that kind of helps you to, to place where we're at at this time. And it says there that in the third year, of the reign of Jehoiakim. Well, I told you Jehoiakim reigned from 609 to 598 BC. So around 606, 605 BC is the third year, depending on whether you count his first year or not. And there's different dating systems. And there's debate about whether or not Daniel was going to count that as his first year or not. But 606 to 605 BC, you've got the third year of the reign. And here comes Babylon. Well, who was Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim was a, a king who was the son of Josiah. Josiah was one of the last good kings in Judah. And Jehoiakim was one of his sons, but Jehoiakim was put in place, not by his dad, but Jehoiakim was actually installed as king over Judah by Pharaoh Necho in Egypt. And Pharaoh Necho put Jehoiakim as king there in Judah because he wanted a a weak vassal king, a servant king that would do Egypt's bidding for him. So Pharaoh puts Jehoiakim in charge over Judah. Well, meanwhile, here comes in in 605 BC, before the, the siege of Jerusalem, Babylon comes through and wipes out Egypt. And Babylon takes over Egypt. And so now Jehoiakim is beholden to not Egypt, but to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Who else was Jehoiakim? Well, Jehoiakim was a guy that killed the Lord's prophets. We read in Jeremiah chapter 26 that he killed a guy named Uriah, not Uriah the Hittite, but a different Uriah. Uriah, that was a prophet of the Lord, Jehoiakim didn't like the fact that he was being confronted by being, uh, for being a wicked king. And so the Jehoiakim kills Uriah. Later on, Jeremiah chapter 36, Jehoiakim sits there as Jeremiah's scroll is read before him and he takes a knife and he cuts it up and he takes it and he throws Jeremiah's prophecy in a burning cauldron in front of him. So Jehoiakim was not a, a good guy. Well, Babylon ousts Egypt and and Jehoiakim gets the idea that it's going to be a good idea to, to rebel against Babylon. So here comes Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and they lay siege to Jerusalem in 605. And that's where we're at as Daniel opens. But why so much background? You may be wondering, why are we focused so much on this idea? Why so much attention given to all this? Why so many dates? Pastor PJ, what are you doing with this? Well, the reason is because it's important for us to understand that God is sovereign over the events of world history. When we think about God's sovereignty, so often we talk about it from a New Testament perspective about our salvation. And that's true. He's sovereign over our salvation. But even beyond that, God is sovereign over the events of world history. Everything that has taken place, if you go back to 1446 all the way to 605, God is orchestrating and rolling things out, all of them, all the way until that 605 date. God is working all of that out for us. And he's orchestrating it all to the point where he brings Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem because that's part of his plan and his will. And if we're going to understand the book of Daniel, if we're going to understand the world that we live in, if we're going to wrap our minds around the landscape that we face right now as Christians, we have to recognize God's sovereignty. That's point number one for us tonight. Recognize God's sovereignty over world history. you know, when we think about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon coming to Jerusalem, we could say, well, he did that because he had just wiped out Egypt and he wanted to establish his power. And so Jerusalem was there and and Egypt had ruled Jerusalem. So it makes sense for him to go to Jerusalem and say, hey, there's a new ruler on the scene. We could say that that's why Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem. You know, we could also say that Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem because of the symbolism of Jerusalem's past grandeur that it's not that long ago, 400 years have passed since Jerusalem was the, the city of David and then Solomon after that. And so it was still on the map. And so maybe Nebuchadnezzar's thinking to himself, well, this is gonna be a notch in my belt if I take down Jerusalem. We could say that that's why he did that. Or we could say that Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem because he wanted to, to just flex his might no matter where he went. And Jerusalem was just the next one on his map. So he said, you know what? I'm gonna go take out Jerusalem. But what the Bible tells us and what the reality is, is the reason why Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem is because God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to go to Jerusalem. Because God led Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem. The book of Habakkuk gives us a glimpse into this. In Habakkuk chapter one, verses two through four, it says this, oh Lord, the prophets, Habakkuk is addressing God here. And he says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not answer, you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk's calling out to God saying, God, where are you? What are you doing right now? Why aren't you intervening right now? Look at how awful and atrocious and wicked this city is. This is taking place, by the way, before what we're reading in the book of Daniel. And here's what God replies to Habakkuk in verses five through 11. God says this, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar. God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome and their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, and their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like wind and go on guilty men in whose own might is their God." See, God was telling Habakkuk the prophet long before they showed up at the gates of Jerusalem, Hey, Habakkuk, you know what? The answer to the sin of my people is I'm bringing the Babylonians, a wicked, bitter, hasty nation whose God is their own might. I'm bringing them. They're going to be an instrument of my justice and my judgment. But it was even way before Habakkuk. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 through 37, as the law is being given, And as Moses is telling the people of Israel, look, God's got this economy set up here where if you obey him, you can expect blessings. But look, if you disobey him, if you go after other gods, if you forsake the Lord, Moses says there's something else that's coming. And listen to what he says here. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 through 37. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you. This is some 800 years before Daniel. Daniel. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. You know what that nation is? Babylon. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And there you shall become a proverb, a horror, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Notice that, where the Lord will lead you away. So again, we ask ourselves, well, who brought Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem? And the answer is not Nebuchadnezzar. The answer is not Jehoiakim. The answer is God brought Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem because he's orchestrating every event in world history. You may say, okay, well, that's the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? Look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Acts 2, 22 through 23, Peter stands up and he's preaching the gospel here. And he's telling the, the, the Jewish people specifically, he says this in verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, verified before you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus delivered up according to or by the what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of who? God. Judas did nothing apart from God's leading him. Who betrayed Christ over to the Romans to be crucified? Judas or God, the father? The answer is yes, both of them did. Because God was sovereign over those events, and guys, let me just say as, as as you try to wrap your mind around this, because I know it's a difficult concept and a difficult thought, and yet at the same time, it should be a comfort to us. As you consider the the election chaos, as you think about the new laws and orders that may come out over the next two years, four years, as you think about COVID, as you think about you know, rumors of China and rumors of Russia and all of those things. As you think about all of this, this concept that God is sovereign over the events of world history should be an enormous comfort to you because what that means is there's not one thing that happens apart from his knowledge and orchestration of it. Not one. God is never waking up surprised by the morning headlines. God doesn't check Twitter to find out what's going on in the world. He's leading, orchestrating, ordaining according to his sovereign will. Consider the verses in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 through 17. It says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. In other words, they're, they're nothing. The nations before the power of God. Behold, he, God, the father takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before the Lord. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. And it goes on in that chapter to say, he does as he pleases. There's not a nation that can stand up to God and do anything apart from what his will is. Or Ezekiel 29, 18 through 20, listen to this. This is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when they went after Egypt. Listen to what Ezekiel the prophet says, though what God says through him. He says, son of man, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare, yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, verse 19, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar. Notice that. Notice the language that God says here and and, and the language that he uses. He says, I, God says, will give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, which was a stepping stone to him getting to Jerusalem, by the way. I will give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment, God says. I'm paying Nebuchadnezzar with Egypt, he says, For which he labored because they, the Babylonians, worked for me, God. They, the Babylonians, worked for me, God, declares the Lord. So, y'all, as you think about this, I want you to think about what makes you nervous and anxious about the news right now. What makes you afraid? What keeps you up at night? What are those anxious thoughts? And then I want you to think about the fact that God is sovereign over all of it. Over all of it. I don't want you to be afraid of what appears to be chaos from the ground because we know the God who is divinely orchestrating the choreography of every single event in world history. None of it's chaotic, none of it's random. All of it is a part of his divine plan for us. That's what we're seeing. That's what we're understanding as we read in Daniel one one that in the third year the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The reason is because God was orchestrating, leading, designing all of those events to lead to that one moment. And then in verse two it says, "And the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar, or the Lord gave Jehoiakim, rather, king of Judah into his hand." with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, that is Babylon, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. You know, the first five words of that verse are astounding, or they should be to us. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, gave the king of Judah, the king of Jerusalem, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 27.6 says this, Jeremiah seven six. Now I have given all of these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Notice the next two words. What are they? My, what does it say? My servant. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most ruthless, wicked, evil, heinous world rulers the, the earth has ever known. God says that in carrying out his divinely orchestrated sovereign plan for world history, that Nebuchadnezzar was his servant. He's my tool he's my instrument in my hands jeremiah 43:10 similarly it says and say to them thus says the lord of hosts god of israel behold i will send and take nebuchadnezzar king of babylon my servant and i will set his throne above these stones that i have hidden and he will spread his royal canopy over them nebuchadnezzar my servant But it's not just that he brought Nebuchadnezzar to the gates of Jerusalem, he opened the gates and gave him the king and gave him the vessels from the temple to be brought back to Babylon. We're going to find out in Daniel chapter 5 that those same vessels that were once used for the worship of God are now used by a different pagan king in Babylon to worship the gods of silver and the gods of gold and the gods of wood. And who allowed that to happen? Who orchestrated that to happen? God did. Ezra says this in Ezra 5.12, because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. God gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Guys, we have to do some work here to grasp how significant this is to us because we read it and it's one of those stories that we're like, oh yeah, sure. That's how the book of Daniel opens. Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and the city falls and yeah, the Lord gave him and that's about God's sovereignty. Great. Let's, let's move on. Let's get to the fun part where they're in the the burning fiery furnace and talk about that. But I want you to think about these things for a second. Imagine if China were to overthrow the United States. Imagine if Russia were to invade and occupy the White House Imagine if Iran were to decimate our country with a barrage of nuclear missiles. And then imagine reading, and God gave the United States into the hands of China, Russia, and Iran. Now, let me be clear. The United States is not Israel 2.0. I'm not trying to make that comparison. I'm trying to help you understand how shocking this should be to us because those things would be shocking to you. Those things would be shocking to us. We're up in arms here in our country because we've got a democratic and a liberal administration that's taking the White House. Imagine if you read, and God gave the White House into the hands of Biden and Kamala Harris. And here's the reality, Christian. You either believe that God is sovereign and that is true, or you don't believe that God is sovereign. If you're thinking, well, he would never do that, then you're not understanding what's going on in Daniel 1, 2. This is so much bigger than him doing that to the United States. This is his city. This is the city where God said, this is where I'm gonna put my name. This is where my temple's gonna be. This is where my king's gonna be. This is where Jesus is gonna come back and reign and rule from. Is Jerusalem. This is the city of David. This is where the temple is. And God's bringing a pagan and a, a Gentile king to the gates of the city, and he's gonna open up the gates and give him the king, and give him his people, and give him the temple, and the city's gonna be decimated. And after this, what's gonna be left of Israel are people in exile. It pales in comparison, but it'd be like our country collapsing and the only vestige of the United States being you and I in foreign countries going, well, yeah, we used to be part of this country that was once existing. At this point in time, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and wipes out Judah, guess what there's no more of? There's no more national Israel on the scene anymore. That's a big deal. And what Daniel is saying is that God did that. See, God is sovereign over the events of world history. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Look guys, here's the reality. I don't know what's gonna happen in our country. I I don't know what the future holds for our country. But I know this, if Jerusalem fell to Babylon, nothing is out of the question for us. And I don't say that to scare you or make you anxious, but to make sure that you have your hope fixed where your hope should be fixed. Your hope anchored where your hope should be anchored. Point number two tonight is this, hope in the God of the nations, not the nation of your gods. God's. Y'all, if your trust in the Lord extends only so far as the stability of this country, then your trust is in this country and not in God. If your trust in the Lord bleeds Republican red, then your trust is in a political party, not in the God of the Bible. And I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm trying to make a statement about what Christianity is. In eternity, the United States will mean nothing. But whether or not your hope was anchored to Christ will mean everything. Next week, we're gonna look at how Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael responded to what's taking place, what we're reading right now. We're gonna look at how they reacted and we're going to see what they, they did in response. And spoiler alert, guys, they didn't jump on 7th century BC Instagram and start complaining and ranting and, and grumbling and getting angry about the state of their circumstances. We read this in First Peter 2.23 about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he was reviled, he did not revile. That means when he was mocked, he didn't mock back. When he was attacked, he did not attack back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? What does Peter say he did? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He kept entrusting himself to his father, the one who judges justly, the one who is sovereign. And so let me ask you tonight, Christian are you entrusting yourself in the midst of the, 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 the turmoil of our country right now to the one who judges justly? Or are you entrusting yourself to a political agenda? Are you entrusting yourself to the ruler of the nations? Are you entrusting yourself to the God who gave Jerusalem into the hands of Babylon and who has given our country into the hands of Biden and Harris? Are you entrusting yourself to the God who judges justly? Is your hope anchored to the God of the nations or the nation of your gods? And now that some of your gods of comfort are being threatened, you're uncomfortable now and you're afraid and you're anxious and you're worried, oh no, what are we going to do? We're gonna do the same thing that we would have done had the opposite of the election happened. We're gonna obey God, love God, trust God, follow God. We're gonna fear God, not man. Y'all, we've been comfortable in this country for as long as this country has existed as Christians. But y'all, if our, our, if our Christianity is tied to those comforts, those rights in our political views, then our, our Christianity is anchored to this nation rather than to the God of this nation. You know, it's interesting right now with everything going on politically and and in all the chaos and turmoil, I've seen a lot of people start talking about eschatology in the end times. Think about trying to explain to the underground church in China while all of a sudden now you're ready to start talking about the end times where they're sometimes imprisoned and even killed for having a Bible in their house. I think the answer is because our view of Christianity is so myopically anchored to this nation and this country that we've lost sight of the fact that God is bigger than the United States of America. You guys may think I hate our country. I I don't. I love our country. I love that I have the freedom to be here and that's what I'm trying to tell you guys. We're, We're still comfortable here. I just... Honestly, guys, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little disgusted by the, the response of the church to everything going on. Because I see a lot of rants about how we need to stand up for our political rights, but I don't see a lot of rants about how we need to make sure that we've got the hope of the gospel out there right now. Are we anchored to the God of the nation or the nation of our gods? Well, look what happens next in Daniel chapter one, verse three. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Let's look at this list a little bit more closely that the king said to his, his chief eunuch. He said, I want you to look for this type of person. So this is who was taken. Okay. Number one, they, they needed to be from the royal family and of the nobility. So they needed to, to have a certain status amongst the people of Israel. That's what the what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. Why? Well, it makes sense. If you're going to conquer a people, you want to take their best and brightest of the, of the highest class and you want to You want to immerse them in your culture so that you can sway them to your side of things and and make sure that they don't rise to power and cause this insurgence. So he's going to take some of the the royal family and nobility. Second thing he's going to take though are those that are are youths. He wants to take the young ones among them. Why? Well, they're still impressionable. They're not fully set in their ways. They can be swayed again. But not only that, he, he doesn't want you know, ugly youths hanging out in his palace. He wants youths that are are in, in good shape. He wants them without blemish. If they're gonna stand in the, the king's palace, man, they, they better be looking pretty good. Not only without blemish, but he goes on he says, similarly, of good appearance. Of good appearance. And then he also wants them to be intelligent. He wants to make sure that they're skillful in wisdom. Not only that, but endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. And then just overall competent to stand in the king's palace. So in other words, this was not an open casting call. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar went in and said, hey, I've got some openings in my palace. Anybody who wants to come serve in the king's palace, why don't you guys come and serve in the king's palace? Now, this was a pretty specific list that he was looking for. And then our text says that it happened or just so happened that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah fit the bill. Just so happened. Or did it. As we'll see in this book, God is going to use these four to do some pretty amazing He's going to put them in the, the throne room of kings. Some of those powerful people in the known world. He's going to put them there and he's going to have them tell these kings about the God of the universe. He's going to take these four and he's going to put them on the jumbotron at this dedication of this giant idol. And he's going to have three of them stand when everybody else falls on their face. He's going to take these four. He's going to take those same three and he's going to take them and he's going to put them in the midst of a fiery furnace that's so hot that it kills the people that carry these three up to dump them into the fiery furnace. He's going to take one. He's going to take Daniel. He's going to put them in a lion's den with lions that are famished and that are starving. And he's gonna take these four and he's gonna put them at the center of his plan for the future of his people. So when we think about this, we have to ask ourselves, was this really just coincidence that they fit the bill that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for? No, not at all. It was no accident that they were found qualified. God wanted them there because he knew that they were gonna be useful to him. God wanted faithful servants then and he wants faithful servants now. Our final point tonight is this, live a life that God wants to use. Live a life that this sovereign God over the nations, this sovereign God over the events of history, as he's working out his plan, he wants to use faithful people in the outworking of that plan. And these four were faithful people that God wanted to use in the outworking of his plan. And we're gonna see how that unfolds in the book of Daniel. But I want you to be that type of person. I wanna be that type of person. We should desire to be faithful people that God will use in his service. You know, these four, when they were taken, were most likely young teenagers when they were taken captive, 13, 14 years old. And they had lived their lives up to that point with no idea what would befall them. They didn't know that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come to the gates of Jerusalem. They didn't know that they were going to be taken captive. They were aware that God was sovereign, but not aware of, where, of, of what or, or where his sovereignty would take them. But nonetheless, even though they didn't know any of that, they were ready to be used by him because they had prepared well ahead of time. They were faithful. They were living lives of obedience. And we're gonna see this even next week as we look at what happens in the rest of chapter one. We see evidence that these young men knew the word of God. They knew the power of God. They had their ultimate hope placed in eternity, not in the the, the present circumstances. And we're gonna also find that they feared God more than they feared men. And that's the type of person that God wants to use. Christian, do you know his word? Do you have a, a confidence in God's power to overcome no matter what the, the circumstances that you face may be? Do you have a hope that's anchored not here, but in eternity? And do you fear God more than you fear men? Such that you can look at whatever the, the landscape may be, culturally or politically or socioeconomically, and you can say, okay, bring it. Because nobody on this side of eternity, he can do anything to me that I need to fear. Because my hope and my trust is anchored in God. Neb was looking, Nebuchadnezzar was looking for the best and the brightest from an earthly perspective. God is looking for the most faithful from his perspective but these youth, they didn't just wake up when they found out that Babylon was there and decide to get serious about their relationship with God. They were serious about their relationship with God and that's why God used them. So students, if you're waiting for the heat to get turned up to, to all of a sudden think that you're gonna be a faithful Christian, you've got another thing coming. Because if you're not stealing yourself in preparation for that now, you're gonna break when the heat gets turned up. You're going to fold like a house of cards. If your Christianity is Christianity because it's convenient and it's comfortable, when it becomes inconvenient and uncomfortable, you're going to bail on Christianity. If that's your Christianity, you have no Christianity at all. You have a facade. And so you need to make sure that you have a Christianity that runs deeper than the surface, a Christianity that runs deeper than Sunday nights. A Christianity that runs deeper than the weekend services. A Christianity that invade your life, that's there in the morning when you get up, that's there throughout your day, that's there when you're in a dating relationship, that's there when you're deciding who you're going to marry, that's there when you're deciding what you're going to do with your life. You need to have a Christianity that permeates and pervades every facet of your life. That's the type of relationship with God that these four had. And that's why when push came to shove, God said, I know who I want in the palace. I want Daniel, I want Hananiah, I want Azariah, and I want Mishael. They were there and it had nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar's decision. It had everything to do with God. God's decision. Is God going to use you, Christian, when the, the heat gets turned up? Does God want to use you where you're at right now? Are you living a life that God's going to look at and go, yeah, that person's going to be useful to me? Again, that's not going to come spur of the moment when the heat gets turned up. That needs to be invested in and prepared and laid that foundation now ahead of time. Yeah, again, right now it's still comfortable for us to be a Christian in this country. But don't let that lull you into a complacent Christianity. I don't know what the next four months are going to hold, let alone the, the next four years. But here's what I know nothing has changed of what the Lord expects of us. Let me reiterate that. Nothing has changed of what the Lord expects of us. Nothing. What are we going to do? We lost the runoffs in Georgia. What are we going to do? We won the one, depending on what side of the aisle you fall on. You're going to do the same thing that you did a week ago. You're going to do the same thing that you did three months ago. You're going to do the same thing that you did four years ago at Inauguration Day. You're going to obey God and follow God because that has nothing to do with who's in the Oval Office and everything to do with who's on the throne eternally. And students, let me just encourage you. Let me just exhort you The church needs to stop ranting and raving and start praying and sharing the gospel with the people that need it. That's going to change things. Your social media posts and your stories ranting and raving about the election and the the turmoil, that's not going to change anything. It's a waste of ink. It's a waste of keystrokes. Stop it. Take that passion, take that angst, take that turmoil. You want to get mad? Don't get mad at flesh and blood. That's what Paul says, right? He says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, our battle is against the the powers at work in this present darkness. If you are angry, get angry at the enemy, get angry at Satan. And if you want to hit Satan where it counts, go make disciples. Disciples aren't made by complaining on Instagram. They're not. We're wasting our platform, church. We're wasting it. And we're causing the world to look at our social media posts and go, well, yeah, it figures. Just, it's, it's what we expect from Christians, right? If you want the world to look different, the gospel is going to change it. Not your post about how the election was rigged or not rigged. That's not going to change it. Because the person that's going to sit in the Oval Office come Inauguration Day is the person that God has sovereignly put in the Oval Office. What you need to ask is, okay, what does he expect of me? Same thing he's always expected of you teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied and said, what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he said this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor. What does God want you to do, Christian? Love God and love others. That's what we need to be focused on as a church, guys. This book is so appropriate for where we're at right now. And Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael provide such a good example for us. I'm excited to go through the rest of it and to start coming face-to-face with what we should be doing and what it looks like to live out our Christianity in the midst of trying times. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are sovereign because the alternative is not pretty. Lord, we are grateful that you are on your throne. And Father, I just pray and ask that we would live like that, that we would think in light of that, that we would respond and react to the events of this world knowing that. Lord, we want this world to be a different place, but not according to our agenda, but your agenda. And your agenda is plain and clear. The mission that you've given us as the church is to go and make disciples, to make people that love Jesus. God, I don't know what the future holds for us or for our country. I pray that you'd be kind to us to continue to give us the freedoms to be able to go out and proclaim the gospel. But Lord, may we be more passionate about the gospel than we are about our rights. More passionate about seeing people become Christians than we are about seeing people vote the way that we vote. God, I pray that you would speed along the day where voting doesn't matter anymore, where we're with you, where the kingdoms of the earth, this earth have become the kingdoms of our God, where all of this will be in a, a, the rearview mirror. Lord, we want to be there. In the meantime, may we be found faithful, God, to you as the sovereign God of all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.